You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 9th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller, coming up on today's programme. I never expected that we were going to turn these red counties blue, but we did what we needed to do, and we had that conversation across every one of those counties. Pennsylvania's new Senator John Fetterman is among the winners amid surprisingly good midterm election results for the Democratic Party. Also ahead, protests in Iran against compulsory hijab and much else besides show little sign of abating after nearly eight weeks. We'll have the latest. Plus, how cities are committing to tackling climate change at COP27. And then we'll hear from Dubai Design Week's director, Kate Barry. I love the idea that Dubai is nurturing this scene and that it's become something now to say, oh, I got it in Dubai. (laughs) So it's that movement that gets me excited. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing on Monocle 24. And welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. Heading into yesterday's US midterm elections, the Republican Party was gleefully, if not gloatingly, predicting what it anticipated as a red wave. They have conjured what may just about be very generously characterised as a red trickle. As we go to air, the GOP probably will take back the House of Representatives, but by a rather smaller margin than they hoped, while there remains a possibility that the Democratic Party might just about Hang on to the Senate. Well, let's get the very latest now with Monocle's Washington correspondent, Chris Chermak, who joins us from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Uh, Chris, good morning. If, if we look at these results, can we discern any overall trend? Overall trend. Well, there's 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 so much to dissect, frankly, in these results, Andrew. But yes, the overall trend, one is, I mean, exactly as you described. The trend is that in a midterm, which historically is is a time where the incumbent party does very poorly, um, no matter who is in power, coupled with the fact that you have a souring economy, extremely high inflation, all of the momentum was supposed to be with the Republicans in these midterm elections. That did not happen. Uh, there was no red wave, as you said, um, and it looks like there is a, a decent chance that the Democrats may even be able to hold on to the Senate. Uh, in terms of some other uh, takeaways, I think wh- where some of that comes from, one of the things that struck me was, you know, heading into this race, everyone was talking about the economy and inflation being the key issue, um, according to many opinion polls. And that's what sort of gave Republicans their their hopefulness, if you will. When you look at some of the, the polling on issues, on exit polls, uh, it turns out that, for example, abortion as well was almost as big an issue as the economy. And that is something that really helped Democrats tremendously as well. And then one other takeaway I'd say when we we can talk about some of these specific races, but one of the things that struck me is that character does still seem to matter. This, This is a divided country, but we did see some candidates kind of impact races, and frankly, particularly those candidates that were chosen uh, or supported by Donald Trump, whether that was in Pennsylvania with John Fetterman versus the celebrity Dr. Mehmet Oz, 
or in Georgia, which at, le at the very least it looks like will go into a runoff, but also in Nevada and Arizona, two states that it looks like the Democrats uh, have a decent chance of holding on to. Both of those two were with Republican candidates supported by Donald Trump not doing as well as they might have otherwise. So that is certainly one of the lessons of this, uh, these midterms as well, that, that Donald Trump's picks don't necessarily do as well as uh, we might expect. Well, let's look at some of those individual races. Do any of them leap out at you as either especially big surprises or especially indicative of anything? Ah, oh, which ones can we pick? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I would I would start maybe with Pennsylvania right here where I am. Pennsylvania is, you know, arguably the the new new and old swing state, uh, if you will, uh, within within the United States. And there were so many things that were fascinating about this uh, race for me. Uh, and, and I think one of the things that was interesting was that the the Democrat in this case, John Fetterman. There were a lot of questions about his health. That was one sort of very specific thing about this race. But other than that, you could argue that he ran very much as a populist, as an outsider, almost, you know, I don't want to say Trumpian, but, but you know, populist in his style, in his presentation, but on the Democratic side versus a TV celebrity uh, Dr. Mehmet Oz, who at the same time was sort of trying to present himself as the unifier and move away from Donald Trump. So it was an example of a race where you actually saw this this sort of dichotomy and how the fact that Donald Trump was not necessarily popular, but, and that's the one thing I would qualify with my earlier lessons, Trumpism as an idea, the populism that exists that is popular here, the 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 issues that that Donald Trump has often uh, supported, um, those are still very alive and well here. People favor outsiders to a larger degree. Um, that's kind of why you saw someone like John Fetterman win as well. So that is something to watch, uh, I would say, going forward. And one of the race I would pick out on a totally separate area, if you will, but also going a little bit to this Trumpism versus Donald. Trump himself, Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, won his race big. Florida in general is, is now essentially a red state, used to be a swing state. It's a very interesting race over there. But the fact, the fact that Ron DeSantis particularly did very, very well being somebody who sort of embodies Donald Trump in many ways, but arguably one of the ways perhaps he doesn't is in his aggressive election-denying rhetoric and what happened in 2020 and some of the other sort of character flaws that Donald Trump has. Um, he did very, very well. So that is something that I'm sure Republicans are going to be looking at in terms of which direction they should be going forward. Well, Chris, just finally then, this is, of course, the last nationwide electoral test until the next really big one, which will be the presidential and general elections in 2024. It was widely assumed that Donald Trump would declare his intentions to stand on the back of a midterms triumph uh, that he had orchestrated. Um, do we have any idea yet whether this these results make him running again more or less likely? That's a good question, Andrew. I mean, I, I, put it this way, before, before these results, it was very clear that he was going to announce his candidacy on November 15th. He had teased an announcement on the 15th of November, which was going to be essentially him running. I, I don't expect that that will necessarily change as a result of this, but certainly some of the wind has been taken out of his sails 
by these results. Um, as I say, one aspect of that is is Ron DeSantis uh, and and Florida. He is also expected to run in 2024. He is going to be a major contender. And I think just generally uh, there is maybe a feeling frankly, in both parties as a result of these these elections, that there is a need for fresh blood, whether it's, you know, the, the outsiders have become the insiders, if you will, even a Donald Trump. There is a need for fresh blood in the Republican Party and also, for that matter, in the Democratic Party. It will be interesting to see as a result of these uh, elections, whether some new people emerge from that, who would challenge, uh, you know, Joe Biden? We don't know whether he is going to run in 2024. Democrats had a good night, but Joe Biden himself did not necessarily have a good night out of this. He still remains quite unpopular, approval, approval ratings in the low 40s. So other people, the California governor, for example, is one who could be coming forward, won re-election very strongly, might be somebody that will challenge also on the Democratic side for the race in 2024. So it'll be very interesting to see what kind of storylines come out of this. Who are the people that win the most out of this? I don't necessarily think it will be Donald Trump or Joe Biden. That was Monocle's Washington correspondent, Chris Chermak. You're listening to The Briefing. Here is Marcus Hippie in London with today's other headlines. Thanks, Andrew. The French President Emmanuel Macron is officially ending his nation's operation in the Sahel. The anti-jihadist campaign has been inoperative since February, when France announced its military withdrawal from Mali. It's been revealed that the world's richest man, Elon Musk, has sold nearly $4 billion worth of shares in his electric car company, Tesla. It follows Musk's decision to buy the social media company Twitter for $44 billion. And finally, Dubai Design Week is in full swing in the United Arab Emirates. The region's largest creative festival will run until Sunday, and we'll be finding out all about this year's showpiece a bit later on today's programme. Those are the day's headlines. Now back. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you very much, Marcus. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24, and it is now 54 days since Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Iranian woman, died in the custody of Tehran police, who had detained her for displaying an untoward quantity of hair. 54 days later, the protests which ensued show little sign of abating, despite the characteristically heavy-handed response of Iranian authorities. Upwards of 300 people are now believed to have been killed. Unsurprisingly, Iran's universities have become a locus of discontent, including the dismantling of gender-based partitions by students in school cafeterias. I'm joined with more by Sanam Vakil, Deputy Director of the Middle East and North Africa Programme at Chatham House. Um, Sanam, first of all, are you surprised by how persistent these protests have been, despite everything? No, I'm actually not, because these protests have been mounting and building after years of pressure, economic mismanagement, uh, and uh, Iranians have been protesting now for a number of years in different forms. And, and these protests really are, are an expression of decades of repression inside the Islamic Republic. What are you hearing from inside Iran about these reports in particular that away from the protests, more and more women, especially in the big cities, are now just going out unscarved and defying the morality police? Uh, I think these are uh, really positive signs. Um, this social liberalisation on dress has been building for a number of years and 
an outcome of Masa Amini's tragic death is sort of a, a growing normalization of uh, relaxation of the hijab. And it will be interesting to see if the government continues to tolerate this. Right now, they are showing signs of increased tolerance and allowing this laxity. It remains to be seen if that will continue uh, should the protest die down and life return to normal. Well, on that question of the protests dying down, are you seeing or hearing any indication of that? Well, the protests are waxing and waning uh, depending on mobilization at universities. There also have been a cycle of protests around the 40th day anniversary of the death of young protesters, um, which is tradition in Shiite Islam. So we've seen protests and gatherings around um, those occasions, along with university-type mobilization. I expect the protests will wax and wane. In 2019 and in 2009, protests continued for many months. So much depends on organization, discipline, and, and momentum, the willingness of these people to risk their lives, and of course, the scale of government repression and, and how uh, how uh, the crackdown um, will continue to be implemented. Well, you mentioned earlier the, the possibility that the government is starting to apprehend that the crackdown is not going to work for them. Is there some sort of accommodation that they might be prepared to reach uh, about female garb that the protesters might also be agreeable to? Well, if there is going to be an accommodation, I don't think it will be anything formalized. And I, I, while that is something we would expect to happen, I don't think there'll be a decree. It would just be a tolerance where the police and morality police are not charged to manage the way women are dressing. And instead, however you choose to dress is, is, is allowed. I mean, it does seem an absolutely bizarre conversation to be having in the early 21st century. But just finally, and it's the big question that has hung over this since these protests started, does this seem any more or less to you like potentially the beginning of the end of the Islamic Republic? It's very hard to be predictive about things. We could be very much in the middle. We just have to see, again, if there is consistent organization, mobilization, and an expansion of these protests beyond the groups that we have seen out on the streets, which include ethnic groups, students, women, young people. You know, what remains the missing sort of component here is the middle class, the middle-aged middle class. If these protests grow and you see more urban momentum, then this can become more serious. I think right now the Islamic Republic unfortunately, continues to have a monopoly of the use of force, and they're not afraid to use it. So this is a, a, an issue that we have to keep watching and seeing if there's growth more than anything. Salam Vakil at Chatham House. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. This is The Briefing on Monocle 24, and we head now to Egypt as we continue our coverage of COP27, the annual United Nations Climate Conference. While much of the focus over the last few days has been on world leaders, cities and local authorities are also keen to be heard. This is where the C40 group comes in, a network of over 97 cities from around the world who are working to fight climate change. Mark Watts is C40's executive director, and Monocle's Carlotta Ribello had a chance to catch up with him earlier this morning. 
Carlotta started by asking him about cities in the network that are examples of best practice. In Seoul, the side of the world, uh, in Korea, where the mayor has both been aiming to retrofit to improve the energy efficiency of all of the public buildings in the city in two years, starting in the pandemic, ending this year, massively reducing energy demand and then creating a solar city, basically, again, achieving 100% renewable electricity. You know, same things in Copenhagen, in Stockholm, in, in Oslo, powering the whole of their city's public transport off renewable energy. It really can be done. All of those examples, the mayor owns a publicly owned energy utility. We need more of that to have real successes. So you feel like that is the key factor here that can make the difference? The only way we're going to achieve halving emissions by 2030 is really strong public regulation and legislation to create and shape markets where the good private sector companies can prosper, investors that believe in zero carbon world can prosper and have the opportunity. And we also need public ownership of the main utilities because that's where the success is happening first. Now, we've talked a lot here about, you know, what's going in the right direction and the success cases. But I'm, I'm curious as well, from your perspective, what are some of the most challenging conversations you've been having with cities in the network? Is there a message when it comes to climate change that you're still struggling to get across and therefore being here at COP is important to raise awareness for that? Is there a particular issue that might be thornier for some places other than others? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few things. One is certainly just the scale of climate breakdown is now so severe and so much faster than all the models had projected that there's just, we're really desperate for more investment in resilience to support cities to protect themselves against the rising sea levels, the flooding, the heat. You know, we are, and there's a corollary of that, which is just the, the rising levels of climate migration, people being forced out of their homes because of climate impacts and generally when they're forced out of their homes they flee to the big cities so the mayor of Dhaka North who's going to be here next week from Bangladesh 2,000 people every day are entering his city the majority of which are climate migrants from elsewhere in, in Bangladesh and mayors mostly get no support to welcome those people who've got incredible skills add to the fabric of the city but need support when they first come so we need a bigger focus on resilience we need a bigger focus on climate migration and of course we need to help people not have to flee their homes which in some cases is going to mean planned retreat so I'm, I'm afraid there are lots of cities now where on coastal areas where there, there are lots of, of homes that just aren't going to be livable in pretty soon rather than people being forced out when disaster happens we need to help them move now help them get jobs and good new homes in places that can be protected from rising sea levels well one of the things that has been a talking point here at cop has been that idea of you know the early warning for all system mm. that you know if you can give just 24 hours notice when a natural disaster is happening that that can by 30 percent decrease the yeah. risk and the impact it has in the region that really ties in with what you just said about the importance of preempting these events that if we do not change course are going to happen. Are there some concrete actions already being taken by C40 on that regard or are you waiting to see what comes out of COP for example to know how you would act? We never wait to see what <laughs> comes out of COP. We, <laughs> we always get on and drive ahead. Yeah absolutely but I, I am a big fan of what the, the UN Secretary General has, has sort of launched this new early warning system project. We think that's absolutely brilliant. We see the big difference that makes. We've also been really, really pushing and supporting all of our cities to have comprehensive citywide air pollution monitoring because for the same reason that 
gives the chance for early warning when there are pollution incidents that can save lives, people suffering with asthma, heart conditions. But also it helps build public support. When you show people that it's not just the air in general that's dirty, but the air outside the school where their child is playing in the playground, then people start to support low emission zones, road pricing, cleaner buses and the investment that that takes. So I, I think you know the public cares about climate, the public wants climate action, but they often they need the data to know what it is that they should be demanding from political leaders and those kind of early warning systems make all the difference. And uh, just finally, what will make uh, a successful COP27 for you? I think with this one, let's be honest, we're not going to get any big movement on stronger emission reduction commitments and action. The thing that's got to be sorted out here is on loss and damage. This is just a, a massive injustice in the world that, that countries that did very little to cause the climate crisis are being hit hardest and still there isn't the money flowing to support not for the long term but not for those immediate disasters 30 million people displaced in Pakistan and what have we seen flown so far you know a few hundred million dollars this is a this is an outrage and we're a strong supporters in in C40 that the first call for that money should be from the fossil fuel industry who've been reaping windfall profits this year with massive rises in in the sale of of oil and gas and coal that money should be flowing instead to support loss and damage that was C40's executive director Mark Watts in conversation with Carlotta Ribello at Sharm El Sheikh in Egypt. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Time now on the briefing to take a look at the latest business headlines. Uh, I'm joined, as usual, by Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Uh, Ewan, within the last hour, huge job cuts at Facebook's parent company, Meta. Andrew, yes. One in eight of the workforce are to go at Meta. More than 11,000 jobs in the first uh, major round of layoffs in the social media giant's history. Now, uh, a bit of a mere culpa from Mark Zuckerberg. He says in his statement that he'd anticipated the big surge in e-commerce and web traffic we saw during the pandemic was going to be part of a permanent acceleration. He says, I got this wrong. Uh, He's also going to cut uh, the company's real estate footprint and review its infrastructure spending, but huge job cuts uh, at Facebook. It comes after several quarters of disappointing earnings and uh, sliding uh, revenue at Meta. There has been a sharp slowdown in digital advertising, which of course have been growing so very rapidly during uh, the pandemic. And also, of course, there is Mark Zuckerberg's multi-billion dollar bet on the speculative virtual uh, reality world uh, called the Metaverse. Now, some investors uh, think this is just uh, a crazy bet on something which is going to happen. But of course, if it turns out to be right, that Meta is really going to be at the forefront of this uh, revolution. Zuckerberg's asked investors for patience as he pours billions and billions of dollars into this uh, vision for the metaverse. The problem is that growth at his flagship Facebook social network has really been stagnating. The plan is to add more users to photo sharing app Instagram, which is still a very successful business, and also been trying to push their short form videos called Reels, which of course uh, a competitor to TikTok. But yeah, big big job cuts at Meta. I mean, obviously what Facebook is hoping isn't the case is the idea that they might have peaked, but Facebook shares are down 71% uh, this year to date. Is, is, is Zuckerberg basically betting the farm on the metaverse? He is betting a huge amount on the metaverse. Of course, uh, we've had this, if you go back uh, a number of years, uh, Facebook originally was not a profitable company. It was a very speculative business uh, and um, 
Zuckerberg bet uh, the farm on mobile being the next big thing. So he bet that people would be sitting around staring at their smartphones, uh, flicking through Facebook and Instagram. At the time, some people said that was a crazy idea. It would never take off. It wasn't worth investing all that money. And of course, on that, he was very much uh, proved right. So again, he is betting the farm, as you say, on this uh, new world, the metaverse. Uh, whether it comes off or not uh, will be a fascinating question to watch. Uh, and just finally, Ewan, we should talk about some inflation data from China. And yes, I've not mentioned the word deflation for a while on air, but China's consumer prices dropped into deflation for the first time in nearly two years last month. This is as global commodity prices slide and all those uh, restrictions, those COVID restrictions have really hit demand in the Chinese economy. Yeah, but producer prices fell 1.3% in the year to October in China and consumer inflation in China, this is quite something. Uh, consumer inflation is currently 2.1% in China. That's the kind of number which uh, in the West we would uh, really kill for. Now, really subdued consumer and producer prices in China in total contrast to the numbers we have over here. Uh, there's been a drop-off uh, on all sides. Chinese consumers reluctant to spend at home with those COVID restrictions and also recession fears abroad hitting demand for Chinese products. And that is starting to show up in the trade data. We had some numbers earlier this week showing that exports and imports uh, both unexpectedly fell for the first time in two years. But yes, yeah, some deflation for producer prices in China. Ewan Potts, thank you as always for joining us. You're listening to Monocle 24. And finally, on today's programme, we're heading to Dubai Design Week, which is in full swing. The event, now in its eighth edition, is one of the industry's most important events in the Middle East and brings together designers and brands from across the region. Monocle's Grace Charlton is in Dubai and has been speaking to Kate Barry, the event's director. So obviously the Middle East has a real energy behind it, but Dubai specifically has such a growing creative community. One, because, you know, naturally the Arab world does have a lot of creativity and it's it's a culture that's based on storytelling. And I think that, you know, when you look at creativity, that's what it is, right? So it was only a matter of time until the Middle East and specifically Dubai could start to have that moment. And I think that Dubai recovered very well from COVID and the world once again started to look at Dubai in a different way because you could come here, you could be safe. You know, it was a place where the sun is always shining. So it also brought in more and more people and people from all different fields. You can see that here it is a land of opportunity. I think that, you know, there's a lot of job creation that comes from all different sectors, but creativity comes with joy and comes with pain. So some people are coming here to seek refuge. You know, some people are coming here because it's a safe place to be. So, you know, from there you have something like joy and pain. And as we said, that creates creativity. So it could be that, it could be the fact that you have freedoms here. So it's all of this combined together that's driving that momentum. We have a beautiful exhibition inside the downtown design tent. Downtown design is the commercial element of Design Week, which is the business of design. So there you have fantastic designers that do everything from furniture to wall coverings, etc. We have international brands. We have about 200 brands that are participating from all over the world. But within these 200 brands, we have a beautiful space called the UAE Designer Exhibition 
where we celebrate exactly that. So we celebrate creatives within the UAE that are designing all different elements from furniture to textiles to rugs and Some of them are up and coming, others are more established, but everybody sits together because again, this is a place that is an inspiration to them. And this is in partnership with the Dubai Design District. Yes. Um, in terms of this neighborhood and like how it's also coming along, can you just quickly talk about that? Definitely. So yes, our we're in strategic partnership with the Dubai Design District, which houses a number of different creative offices. So you have everything from boutique graphic design firms to some of the larger brands, whether it's through LVMH, etc. So everybody's living within the same space. And I think that that's what makes it interesting because it's not categorized per se. You know, you have all different offices next to each other. So in the lift, you know, you bump into all different kinds, including, you know, CEOs of major leading brands. So I think that when everyone sits together, it creates a space that creates more and more discussions or discourse and you know you might be sitting in the cafe downstairs and you're sitting beside a CEO of a major fashion house and you can naturally hear what they're saying (laughs) in most cases Um, and I think that those kinds of best practices or that kind of sharing is part of what makes the Dubai Design District very interesting. We also are working in partnership with Dubai Culture which really helps also to foster all of this growth and um, you know I think that Dubai has really committed to this cause and it's not an easy one because the creative community is a very diverse community people with all different talents so you know between both Dubai Design District and Dubai Culture you know they've again created this beautiful bubble where we could all live in the same space and really be able to communicate on what makes Dubai a special place. A friend of mine actually has a design house and now he's actually exporting outside of Dubai to London to LA and he created a a small label on it that says made in fabulous Dubai (laughs) and I love that you know I love the idea that Dubai is nurturing this scene and that it's become something now to say oh I got it in Dubai (laughs) so It's that movement that gets me excited. Having lived here for 15 years, I've seen the building of a new city and um, it's exciting. Nobody is jaded. Everyone gets behind ideas and, and, you know, your friends and your family, everyone sort of coexists together and everyone's pushing each other. And I think that that excitement is what makes it so dynamic here. That was Dubai Design Week's Kate Barry speaking to Monocle's Grace Charlton. And that is all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Rhys James. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Nora Huell. The Briefing is back at the same time tomorrow. I'll be here with the Monocle Daily at 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. 